Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. Can I just say, every time I say the name of our podcast, I think for people who care so much about words and communicating, it is. <laughs> it just makes me laugh <laughs> how like pedantic it is. <laughs> Two Pastors Take a Walk. Um, and how it like doesn't convey any information about the things that we actually care, care about, about and consistently address in this podcast. We like to go stealth and talk about really important things. We sneak but, up on people. But Listen. make it sound super, super lame, right? Anyway, we might need a rebranding. Maybe. That might be our problem. But Branding. we are gaining listeners, which is astonishing to me. Uh, that's not what I was planning to talk about, but I was checking the analytics um, last week, and we get about... Twelve to thirteen hundred listens a month, so about three hundred oh, a week. That is, that's pretty amazing. Easily twelve to thirteen hundred more people than I <laughs> um, would expect to listen. I I I really love doing this, and it is just a, a cherry on the Sunday that oh. it actually is helpful for people and interesting to people. So I'm grateful, and um, yeah, that's really I'm I'm honored by that. So what? Is astonishing you? Well, um, as you know, um, I've been working really hard, like all pastors, you know, working really hard in the season, and um, it's really hard for me not to think about other congregations that I've served. Um, sometimes I wonder, you know, what would have happened in those congregations if I'd stayed a little longer, worked mm-hmm. a little harder, um, fought a little harder. Um, you know, some it just, you know, in retrospect, you wonder, you know, sure. did I leave too sure. soon? For and sure. so in this season, I'm just determined to, you know, as they say in sports, leave it all on the field. And so I'm really giving it everything um, and sometimes too much um, in terms of just energy and being tired and balancing uh, church and family. Um, but I've been, you know, working particularly hard the past month or so and have felt um, a real fatigue and uh, thought, okay, I cannot continue this pace. and I need something to change, something to shift. And God is so gracious and wonderful and has a ram in the bush. Uh, last week, there is someone in our community. Her name is Cora. Everyone calls her Cece. Uh, she is a recent grad of Liberty University, currently serving as a hospital chaplain intern. Uh, she's not a member of our congregation, but she came to see me last week, and she's told me that she has a son who is my age, uh, serving a small church in Philadelphia, and she knows how hard he works, and she just wanted to, wanted to know how she could help me. And I was so blown away by that. I really didn't know what to say in the moment. But later, it occurred, um, and I, I trust this was the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, to ask her to preach for me. And so I, I met with her on Sunday and asked her if she would preach for me sometime. Um, and she said, how soon? I said, well, could you do it this coming week? And she said, absolutely. And it's such an incredible gift because we're in the place of... Uh, rebuilding a website, uh, rebuilding our live stream, and a lot of that falls into my lap. And I just really haven't been able to get those things done. And the Lord has just really given me a gift in this woman who has come alongside to help in ministry. And I have to say, I have to acknowledge that in my 20-whatever years of ministry, um, there have been a number of women uh, from professors to elders to clergy who have just been instrumental in my being able to get anything <laughs> worthwhile done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made a commitment probably about 15 years ago that if I was going to be out of the pulpit, um, my first choice would be a woman. And um, I went against that one time 
Yeah, please tell that story because that's an awesome story. Yes. I mean, it's not a good awesome story, but a remarkable thing that happened. The one time um, I chose a man to preach for me when I was going to be on vacation. From the Presbytery Pulpit Supply List. Yes, and this person was requested by a member of the congregation who had preached there before I became the pastor of this particular congregation. I called him and asked if he would preach for me. He said, yes. And so I went on vacation, assuming everything was okay because he'd been in that pulpit before. And then I got a call, I mean, just a couple of days before, I think it was like a Thursday, saying that he had overbooked and agreed to preach at another church as well on the same Sunday. And he was choosing that congregation. And I was still fairly new in this church, and so I cut my vacation short and went home. And my memory of that moment is that, like, he wasn't even sorry. Like, he he just was like, dude, not dude, he wouldn't have said dude, but he was like, yeah, I overbooked, and the other church was whatever, by common standards, bigger and, quote, more important. And he was just like, yeah, whoops, I accidentally also said, told Church X I would preach on that Sunday, and so I'm going to go there. Like, not any sense of like, oh, you know. But that's what I get for going against my stated commitment of always having women in the pulpit. I will just say that there are times when... Male clergy colleagues really disappoint me. And that's all I'm going to say about okay. that. <laughs> very good. Well, and to get back to uh, Miss Cece, I'm just so very grateful and astonished by this great gift from the Lord. And it's coming just at the perfect time, which is what God does, right? Right. And I guess the only thing that I would say about that, what that connects and reminds me to, is there are some times that I just get, I, I get burdened by pride and a sense of over-responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there are probably lots of rams in the bush around me. Mm-hmm that I just don't even pick up my eyes to see them there um, because I buy into this lie that it's my, do it. it's my responsibility. And for me, it's not feeling like I'll do it better. It, it really sincerely is not that. And it's not even needing to control it. I, I don't have control issues except in very small places, but I specific places. Um, but I do have an issue of feeling like it is an abdication of responsibility um, or like I should be taking care of this and it's not anyone else's responsibility. So it's just an interesting thing of like really leaning deeper into God's vision for Christian community and away from this American CEO construct that we often unthinkingly get influenced by that the reality is this is not my church it is it is obviously Jesus's church and it is our community and we are all shaping it and it is not being irresponsible as a pastor to invite people in to do significant portions of the life-giving ministry of the congregation like that's not something that we should apologize for doing. That's something that we should apologize for not doing. Mm, and like good. really scratch the surface of like, you tell yourself this is about serving people and you tell yourself this is about like bearing burden out of love for people. But is it really about thinking that you're the only one who can do it like way deep down side, you know, or is it really about wanting people to think that you're superhuman or you do everything? I mean, you know, is it really just not as cute Mm. as you think it is and and is it really about overfunctioning to hide places of lack and emptiness and weakness in the community where it would be more faithful as a pastor to be honest like we have no one to teach this class therefore it can't be taught That's and good. creating that space wherein some people can say they won't say well I can't do it because I'm not going to do a better job than the pastor, but they might say, I mean, and, and they'd be wrong, by the way. <laughs> there are many, 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 many 
many, many scenarios where you, in fact, absolutely would do a better job than the pastor, probably because you're not the pastor. But I think people won't don't tend to think that, especially if they like us and respect us, they're going to have that assumption. But if there is a blank space, people might say, well, I don't think I'm good enough but I'm better than a blank space and we'll then step into ministry, That's which good. I mean, we, you know, the way you get into ministry is either by in being invited by someone who says, I see something in you that maybe you don't see in yourself and I'm going to support you and nurture you in this, or you, you know, there's a, there's a need and the Lord compels you to step in, invites you to step into it. But, you know, no guilt and shame matrix of, you know, just a real trusting of, you know, cause I mean, it's going to take as long as it takes for the church website to get set up, right? Right. And and I, what has been helpful for me and what I try to say to people all the time is, you know, it's like that nice phrase. I say this very rarely about Presbyterian liturgy, but it's that nice phrase in the Presbyterian liturgy around, or the Presbyterian Book of Order around baptism, that it, it, that it says, instructs parents that their children should be baptized without undue haste or delay, right? And I just really like that language of like, yeah, it matters. Like we are going to do work while the sun is up, right? But we're not going to like, it, we're not going to act as though we're Pharaoh's brickmakers either because we're not. And this idea, and I try to say, I really mean this. I remind myself of this. Like we have all the time in the world. We literally have all the time in the world to become the church that God is creating, calling us to be. So we're not going to run out of time. That's good. And that's, I think, a real, liber I mean, it was really liberating for me to remember, like, I feel like I should have already done this by now. But the reality is I couldn't. And so that's the truth. And Yeah, and it's, it's hard not to compare, right? Yes. To look at the yes. church down the street or across the city and say, hey, we should be where they are. Where they are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, yeah, it's very, it's very hard. So, well, I'm grateful for that. And I am grateful for your wisdom in receiving the gift uh, and taking your blessing. Um, I'm sad only because this was our series that we were going to preach together. And then you won't be preaching this text and I won't be preaching the next text. So womp womp. <laughs> oh, well. Next time, maybe next year, Cleveland. Yeah. So what's astonishing you? Um, so what is astonishing me this week is we, um, I am, I mean, I've said this before, but I feel like it's worth saying consistently because it continues to astonish me. And the day that it stops astonishing me is the day that I need to seek a new vocation, vocation. Um, this past week, um, I officiated at the homegoing service of um, a member of our community and his death um, was very tragic and very bitter. And I, I feel like it's important even con saying that is I really believe that I experience and believe that the gospel gives us um, tools and healing and growth and a way to face the reality of death and not be defeated by it. Um, and also <laughs> I don't like it when people in the church act as if the death of someone who was elderly or the death of someone who was sick is somehow an acceptable death. Um, I don't, I don't like it when we sort of artificially, I, I mean, I just think sometimes we get too used to death and we believe that it was a part of God's plan for life on earth. And that's just not how I read scripture. And so while I don't want anybody to live in de denial, and obviously death is a reality in this world that we have to have the wisdom and the spiritual tools to, to face, <laughs> um, I also just think it's really important to say there's no death that we would just be like, oh, well, they were 205 and I don't care if they die. I mean, like, no, like this was not God's plan. And I think sometimes sometimes we can get so accepting of death that we make it seem as though people in the Christian community who are mourning the loss of their loved one 
um, are, are somehow doing something wrong or who are not being faithful or not trusting God enough. And I think we can even honestly give thanks to God that someone is released and healed from their suffering and mm-hmm. still say, none of this was God's, none of this was God's will. Um, and I just, you know, I think that's important to say because I think that wrong theology of death is has crept into and is sometimes framing our response to the pandemic, that there are a lot of Christians who functionally are saying, well, most of the people who are dying are old or weak or have a pre-existing condition, dot, 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 parentheses, so their deaths don't really matter that much, right? Or this idea that like, well, if young and healthy people were dying or if children were dying, it would be different. But since it's just old people and weak people and sick people, you know, it's not really, you know, and it's just so gross. It's like, well, it's just not got anything to do with the um, the glory of life that we see um, witnessed to us in scripture and that I think people who are in deep, communion with God through the Holy Spirit experience. And that's not to say that, again, I'm not saying that Christians, healthy Christians, deny that death happens. It does. And and we are not undone by it because we understand the role that it plays in the eon that we're in, right? So we have tools and coping capabilities that other people don't have. But, but even with those um, ways of coping... Oftentimes, the church, if we're honest, isn't a healthy place for people to bear their hearts open. Right. Right. And so you kind of have, you you hold your grief at arm's length. You don't let too much of it in because if you let the fullness of the grief, the fullness of the reality of death in, you will, you you will feel that you, you, and you have to release that you will cry you will um you will express that grief and i think in in many ways because of the pandemic because there's so much hardship and pain in the world there are many who have just chosen to harden themselves lest they feel more pain than they really want to feel right and i i just think that sometimes we almost we almost you know in our not explicitly, but implicitly, we encourage people to pretend that they are strong when they are not. And we encourage people to pretend that like, sort of this idea of like, oh, just grow up. Like you're not undone, but like this just happens, like get over it. And I, and that's not, you know, Jesus walks up to the tomb of Lazarus and weeps because, and, 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 well, weeps with the people who are weeping and then walks up to the tomb and actually, is overcome with rage mm-hmm. at the way that death has disrupted and mm-hmm. and and thwarted and marred the image of of you know God's plan of shalom for all of humanity for all of creation not just humanity. So um, I just think it's really important to walk that line of like we have something to say at the moment of death um, that we have a, a defiant hallelujah that we can give that you might think that this is the end and we know that it's not. And that is a context wherein we have the, the strength to go on. And also we, um, the truth of the gospel is real enough that we don't have to pretend that we're not hurting when we are. And we should never think like, well, I I believe that this person is, you know, alive now in the kingdom of God. So it doesn't really matter that they've died here on earth. I mean, that's a, that's a, and both things can be true at the same time. You can grieve. There is a certain loss. Death is a reality and you must acknowledge the reality of this loss. And it's a, and, and it's huge. And I think even if you say, I trust God, even if you believe as I do that, I trust God with the eternity of my loved one. Like, I just believe that there's no way I could love this person more than God does. And so I trust that the promises of scripture are true and that, you know, by his death, Jesus Christ has secured a resurrection. And if we share a death like Jesus's, we will share a resurrection like his. Like, I believe that. And I even believe that, you know, whatever. I mean, it's just what I think. So it doesn't really matter what I think. But I, I really think... 
and I hate metaphysics and I hate theologies, but I can't help but speculate sometimes. But I really believe that, you know, the kingdom of heaven is outside the bonds of time. And so I really do believe that our loved ones who have been rescued from death by the resurrection of Jesus are, are not even separated from us, right? They are in the, the eon to come. And so for I can really be have great hope for the wholeness and fullness of life that the one I love is enjoying, not someday, but today. And also have real raw grief that like, I don't get to be with them yes. in that way. And yes. this family who is still in the, the sphere of time is deprived of the ongoing presence and love and comfort and whatever. So, I mean, it just is a both, it's a both and. Absolutely. And, and to, that, to, that's shaped my preaching um, at mm-hmm. funerals because I spend very little time talking about the person who has died. Mm-hmm. I allow members of the family and friends to share mm-hmm. stories. And when I get up, I just want to walk people through the reality of death and grief mm-hmm. and the hope of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Same, same. So the that's not even what I'm astonished at, <laughs> which is an odd thing to say. I'm not astonished at the resurrection. <laughs> Something else. Um, obviously, I'm astonished at that. Uh, I am always astonished and so honored and feel um, it's hard to put words around the invitation to pastor people in the moment that someone they love has died and the um, call to sit with someone in their grief um, to not need to fix it or stop it, but just to be with them and, and physically by your presence and the weird way that dumb, weak things somehow are used by God for manifestations of glory, like to sit with them and by your physical presence, manifest the fact that God is with this in you. (laughs) Um, is God is in this with you. Um, and also then to have a worship service, um, giving both giving thanks for the life the gift of the life of this person who did not have to be and yet was and is um, to defy death and and make that defiant hallelujah that like we acknowledge the reality of this earthly death and still we have hope and that hope helps us go on right um, and and to just be able to to show up in this place of just extreme disorientation and pain and grief and and have these promises to share that obviously don't come from me or by me, but are real and make a real difference. It is just one of the most meaningful um, things I, I mean, like things that I am called to do. Like I just, the honor of it is just such an amazing thing. And I, and I, you don't want to say like, I enjoy, I don't, in, you don't enjoy funerals because they are, um, it, it's, it is, they're predicated upon a tragedy, but to be able to be in the midst of that tragedy and, and to have something to give is just such a huge honor. And to see the Lord ministering to people in those moments is such a huge honor and period. And then particularly serving in a multi-ethnic church, when you have a member of your community who is not, you know, a member of your personal ethnicity who invites you to be pastor to them. I mean, A, I've talked before, like to be invited to be anybody's pastor ever is a huge honor to be invited as a, you know, as a church in America, given the reality of the just ways that our relationships as brothers and sisters and the image of God has been marred in one another by the reality of the power and principality of racism. Like the fact that the grace of God transcends that in some way and that there is an actual authentic and healthy way to be the body of Christ together is just, I, I will never take it for granted and I cannot understand it as anything else except for this living, um, witness this sure sign that God is at work doing this work of redemption and reconciliation. Like there's no other explanation for it for me. And so then to, to be invited then to pastor at moments of deep tragedy, like a death. I mean, we just know that culture, which matters so much 
is there it is it is so intense in moments of of death around death and so and so sacred and to be invited into that moment when you when the culture is not authentically yours and when there's a real risk for the person inviting you in that like gosh Kate I know you love me but you also just you don't understand what you don't understand right and like to be invited into that moment and they know that like I can't be a black church pastor I I can't be that and and we were talking on the walk um, about how you know one of the ways that God has been so present to black American Christians in the midst of the horror of um, chattel slavery and Jim Crow and just deep systemic injustice is, you know, the black community knows how to grieve um, and the black church knows how to grieve and knows how to mourn. And they've learned that in the, in this, school of the devil of, and, and, um, in a different way that, and I was talking to you on the walk about how particularly in my own family, as we navigate grief and, and the challenges of that, um, being just seeing the difference, um, between the ways that this family who, um, gave me just this deep honor of pastoring them in this moment, just seeing the deep wisdom and tenderness they had around telling the truth um, about death, making space for very young children to feel their feelings and um, speak their feelings in the context of sacred worship and centering that and what a, what a holy and healthy and healing thing it was. Um, and this particular service to invite the grandchildren to write a letter to the grandfather they'd lost and to name their, their love for him to name, to have that as a context wherein they were able to name his love for them to speak the truth of how how painful it was that he did not come home from the hospital and to speak the truth of how they were going to live out his legacy as beloved ones and the hope that they have to be re reunited from him in eternity and also the the deep soul truth that they have even now of knowing they're not totally separated from him, that his presence and his spirit is with him. Like it just was so sacred. Um, and to be invited to be part of that, like that's just such a manifestation of the fact that like um, they're the body of Christ really does both not make uniform, but, but provide a unity that transcends and also recognizes as sacred the particularities of our individual cultures and lived experiences doesn't erase them i just you know it just was a really um weighty um honor um and i i am astonished i like i'm just astonished by the way that god is knitting our hearts together in spite of the ways that the enemy of our souls would tribalize and divide us and just how messy and vulnerable that work is, like how much courage it took for them, I think, to invite me to pastor in that moment. And, and I don't know, it just, it, it's hard to put words about it, but I feel like the part of the point of having this podcast is to really talk sure. about mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. you do multi-ethnic community in a deep sense, like it's, it's, it's just um, different than when you're doing monocultural ministry. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying that God is not in monocultural. I would never presume to say that, but I'm just saying like, there's just an intrinsic discomfort that you have to lean into <laughs> Um and you have to almost, like, you can't try to get rid of that because, because that, I think, is where the real glory of the Lord is manifested. Like, your own weakness is so apparent. 
Yes, one of the conversations we have um, at Dorita Church, um, and I've had it in other multi-ethnic Christian spaces, especially with uh, mainline Christians, is this idea that white mainline Christians are not emotional. Mm-hmm. The thinking is, okay, black Christians are emotional. White Christians are not emotional. And I just think that is a lie. Yeah. There is, what I see is a deep, deep discomfort in white mainline Christians, not with emotion in general, but with certain emotions Mm -hmm. like joy and grief. Those are the two that I think just scare Mm-hmm. And but anger in a sacred space. I was going to say, but we'll get angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I can storm the Capitol. <laughs> I can right. be angry. But um, radical joy, losing yourself in joy yeah. or losing yourself in grief, those things are just put in a very small box, mm-hmm. held deep within, and not really released. And again... I'm only talking about my experience, my limited experience. Right, but, but I think, I mean, it's true, and, and it, it took, it, I mean, no surprise to anyone who's been about this work, and we've talked about this before, it, it was ironically, maybe counterintuitively for some people, it is harder for me to see that as a white person than it is for you to see that as a black person, because... <laughs> What part of the power of white supremacy is that white people think that whiteness is just normal mm-hmm. <laughs> and that anything else is a derivation of normal. And we would even say, like, well, not bad. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that what I do is the norm and what everybody else does is, like, it's a fine. It, it could be fine, but it's different than the norm. Well, and not only different, but it, it, it is assumed deficient. Right. And I think people are trying to correct for this idea, like consciously correct for the idea that it's deficient without even recognizing that this assumption that we're making that we don't even see that we're making, but just the assumption that white is normal is in and of itself supremacist. Mm -hmm. Even if we would say, no, 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 I think it's different, but I don't think it's better or worse. Okay. But if you think that something else is different than you, then you're saying that what I am is normal and that in and of itself like why do we have that why do we think that but I mean putting all that aside I think what is helpful is white people well in my experience it's not just that I am blessed and educated and get wisdom from people of color about the experience of being a person of color it's not just that I don't know what that is like but it's also that in some ways they understand better than I do what it's like to be white mm. because whiteness doesn't tell the truth about itself. And so a person looking in at the culture from the outside might say like, hey, you think that your worshiping culture is dignified and reverent and that might be so. But what I see is the only place you feel free to lose yourself in joy is at a sporting event or a concert, and you express you you don't express your grief anywhere, and so I see it getting manifested in rage and anger in inappropriate places. Yeah. And what what we know from you know the way that God is redeeming tragedy in in our lives is that the sacred space is actually the safest and healthiest space to manifest to lose oneself in joy and to um stop resisting the overwhelming pain of grief that that god and god alone is big enough to handle that and i think we could say the same thing about men and women mm-hmm. you know we talked um several weeks ago about um mark driscoll and mars hill and this hyper masculinity uh, you know people have been saying for you know, I guess a few decades, the church is too feminine. That's why men are not coming to the church. Well, it's it's a similar thing, right? Men are socialized to, um, you know, box up emotion. Like, okay, women are emotional, right? Men are not. We're logical, and so if you have worship that is about joy, 
if the joy of the Lord is our strength, if it is about a passionate love for Jesus, if you tell the story of the woman who goes in with her alabaster jar and anointing Jesus' feet, then if, you, if you're operating with a narrative that we are not emotional creatures, then it makes sense then that men would drift away. But the answer is not then a hyper-masculinity that says, okay, no, the church has to look more like you know, toxic masculinity, MMA fighting, right? No, it's to realize that we are not living into the fullness of our humanity by denying our emotions. And I'm not, there's no comparing and there's no ranking, but I'm just saying as toxic as the system of white supremacy is, the gender norms are also a system that are also that's also toxics that is shaping us in lots of ways even when we consciously and morally reject them and we have to be open to thinking like okay i know that believing in the inferiority of women is not is is not true i know it's not godly i know it 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 i know that that's not right and yet even as i reject it i Every experience that I've ever had in the world has been shaped by systems that have been denied, that have been structured around that basic premise. And so I am, I've internalized this in ways that are not conscious and I need to be conscious about expecting that just because I know with my head this isn't so, I shouldn't expect none of my instincts, none of my biases, none of my behaviors will be influenced by this you know, toxic sea that I'm swimming in all the time, which I mean, is one reason that therapy is helpful because we, you, people are like, I don't need to go to therapy. I'm not crazy. I'm like, sure, maybe. (laughs) Although (laughs) that's what crazy people say, (laughs) but I use, I don't need to go to therapy because I'm not crazy. I'm healthy. I'm like, that might be so, but the culture you live in is crazy. The culture you live in all the time, it is toxic and you don't have any choice about whether or not you live in reality. So being in a place where people can help you see, hey, here are some ways you're being influenced that you're not even aware of, and here are some tools and some practices that can help you be healthy and whole and heal and not be unconsciously influenced, like that is is really, really life-giving. So just to illustrate that, in the context of worship, when I feel full, when I feel a fullness of the spirit, I am going to cry. I, that's when, when I feel a full joy, it just comes out as tears. Mm-hmm. But then I start a wrestling match, right? So the part of me that wants to be anti-sexist says, yes, let it out. You know, yeah. you know, be full man and cry in front of everybody. The part of me that doesn't want to play into a black stereotype, look at these emotional black people in worship. Then says, okay, do I need to pull back? And so instead of being in my full humanity, right there in worship, I'm having this tug of war. And so therapy is helpful to, you know, start untying those knots and to examine those things. Well, and I will say um, also not everyone has access to therapy and not everyone, even if they have access to therapy, has access to a good therapist. Mm. So I do think that it's not that everybody has to be in therapist and therapy and if you're not, you're doomed. I think there are practices that, you know, in some ways I think that if, if the culture were healthier, well, it's what I just said, if the culture were healthier, if we had more community, more deep life-giving spiritual friendships, more family systems where we felt safe, Um, to be flawed and to be weak and to be vulnerable, we wouldn't need so much therapy. And so part of the reason everybody needs therapy is because we have a lack of those things. But also, if you can't find good therapy or you can't access good therapy, you can work on, you know, can I, can I, can I get some good friends? Can I get some, you know, there's other. If you can just listen to your spouse without getting (laughs) defensive. (laughs) My wife said, do you know you do this? And my first impulse, like, I don't do that. It's like, oh, wait a minute. I do do that, yeah, don't I? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, didn't, I didn't intend to talk about therapy today, but here we are. So, uh, yes. But your experience um, leading that homegoing service and the community 
around it, within it. Um, it's very beautiful. Well, it's a, it's a deep, it's a deep honor. I mean, it is, to be clear, I, I love being pastor mm -hmm. and I, and I, I don't take for, I don't, it astonishes me every day that I have been invited um, by God and by this community to pastor. And it, it really is the deep honor and joy of my life. And that's regardless of the ethnicity of the people who are doing that. I'm just saying that I'm just naming and naming this truth can make people uncomfortable. There's a level of comfort when I am pastoring white people because there are just things that I understand that I'm not even conscious that I'm comfortable. It's, you know, it, I just, there are things we have in common. And then when I am ministering to people of color, it's no less mediated by the spirit of God. In fact, I think it's probably more mediated because I'm not functioning in my own comfort. I don't have as much, I'm, I'm don't have as many, um, unaware assumptions. You're, you're not on autopilot. Um, there's you have no a part that's on autopilot. You have a heightened listening, a heightened sense of, I've got to be open to what's happening around me and, 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 and listening. And I think like you just, there are things that you have done a million times in one context that you sort of, there's a pattern, there's an expectation, you just kind, and then when you were, when you're doing the same things in a different context, you just, again, like, I mean, this comes, we talk about this a lot. I think we sort of assume that when we are really in the place that God calls us to be and we're really healthy and we're really growing, that we'll experience that as deeply comfortable. And I just think that is exactly not true. That feeling comfortable, not, which feeling comfortable is different than feeling safe, right? So I think we need to feel safe spiritually, but I don't think we need to feel comfortable all the time. Um, and, and so I think, I don't know, it's really hard to put words around this, but again, I just think the whole point of this podcast is to have a real conversation about multi-ethnic ministry and what it looks like and that you have to talk about the things that people don't want to talk about and you have to risk having a real conversation knowing that you might unintentionally convey the wrong um, truth and, uh, Listen, and that's... There have been funerals um, in multi-ethnic congregations that I've pastored, and the person who has died has maybe one or two family members in the congregation, and 90% of the people attending the funeral are coming from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting. I've had members of the church related to the deceased, when it's time for me to meet with the family, almost, and it's a, ve it's a very loving act, and I see what they are attempting to do, but they will introduce me to the greater family almost as if to say, hey, you better not question if this is our pastor or not. This, this right. is like, this is our pastor. We love him. And they'll, and they'll just go on for a minute and then they'll go, okay, you take it. And that's yeah. a very, um, and it's happened um, several times at Dorada Church. And um, I always experience it as these people welcome value even defend my pastoring them right and i think that's helpful because that that is and that has happened mm -hmm. and i really am honored by that and i think part of the issue is you know i'm not a white person pastoring a white church you are not a black person pastoring a black church we are people pastoring multi-ethnic churches and not very many believers go to multi-ethnic churches. Now they might go to churches that are diverse, but are monocultural. Yeah, if you have, but well, and you might have, let's say you have a thousand members and, um, 20, it's a, it's a thousand members. Most of them are white and 20 black members. Okay. Technically you have some diversity, but that doesn't mean 
you're in relationship with him. Right. Right. And, right. and well, and we're talking about how pastoring a multi-ethnic church means you're doing this work of figuring out what the culture is. Like if it's not one ethnic group's culture and yes. traditions over another, that it is this new thing that God is doing in your midst and everyone is uncomfortable. And so everyone in our multi-ethnic communities is kind of signed up for that. But anybody who comes to a funeral service, I mean, they are probably not part of a multi-ethnic church. And they, yeah. a lot of them are people of faith and they're looking at maybe someone who has left their faith community to come be a part of this multi-ethnic church. And I think that's what I'm aware of is like, you know, it, this is not, this is different. And one thing that people don't want, especially around death is different, right? I mean, there's just deep comfort yes. that comes yeah. from, you know, there's just power and comfort that comes from these traditions that are handed down in any cultural group. And so to have them not be able to be what is expected in that moment is hard. And I, I think the same thing that like the people in our communities are saying like, no, I chosen to be a part of this community and it is, and I'm all in. And that means even in these very sacred moments. Um, and that is just a real, um, a real thing, and I'm I'm wondering, are are we going to talk about this? Oh well. <laughs> I mean, we don't have to. That that'll add intrigue to this moment. We don't have to talk about this, but like it just doesn't always happen, right? That's correct, right? And so, <laughs> Kate just wrote on a piece of paper, and another congregation that um, I was privileged to pastor for a time, and you know they did not. Um, ask me to preach their funerals um, the, the whole time I was there. You were um, there for years? Um, a couple of years. It, it wasn't a, a great relationship. And you... Um, I worked really hard, um, but it was clear we, we had two different visions. Right. And But whenever there was a death, they would call a former pastor. So they were a majority we, white, historically white congregation. Correct. They had called you as a black man to be their pastor. Correct. They said, we want to be a multi-ethnic church. Correct. And then every time anyone in the community died, they would say, "Call the former, a former pastor." Right. We, so, at the moment so of death, they were like, "We want a white person in the pulpit." What that communicated to me over time was that I wasn't their pastor. I yes. was an employee, but I wasn't their pastor, and I, I felt that deeply. And yeah. I think to be as generous and as it possible, wasn't. A, I, I need to say this: it wasn't about. Um, pride of pulpit no, right I'm, this yeah. is this is mine and how dare you ask someone else it was oh i walked with this person in the last few months of their treatment and their hospice day and their time of death i was there but i don't get to preach the funeral that's after that happened several times you just kind of well what you see you know, is that you're in their eyes you're not their pastor Yes. And I think this is the thing, like, I don't have a right to be anybody's pastor, right? So that's, anytime anybody asks me to be a pastor in any capacity of their life, it's a deep honor. And at the moment of death, the family needs to have the spiritual leadership that will nourish them and protect them and feed them. And they, they need that. So in that moment, it's not about, I mean, they should ask who they need in that moment. But if somebody is your pastor, you ask them. And, and if you don't ask them, well, then what that shows painfully, you end them is, and this isn't a shame or a blame thing, but that person's not really your pastor. Because if they were really your pastor, they'd be the one you wanted. And since you don't want them there, then what is being revealed in this moment is, this is not a person who you really see as your pastor. And again, like that's not shame. That's not blame. It's just truth. Mm -hmm. And you know, until we face that and I, and I see it happening. I mean, it is quite frequent that historically white churches will in good faith, in real sincerity and authenticity will call a black person to be their pastor. And then in a thousand real ways, we'll show them. Yeah, we don't, you're not our pastor. And I think, um, it just, it, I mean, we just have to like, 
we just have to acknowledge that and, and not to like, again, not to shame and blame those congregations, but to say like, this is not, you're not, you're not where you think you are. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's okay because brokenness and sin, like, and, and just weakness, like God can work with that, but we can't pretend that that we are further along in our journey than we are. And, and the person who gets wounded most is the black man or black woman who in good faith showed up to take a call to pastor and then gets the door slammed in their faces at the most sacred moments. And you feel like you're being like gaslit in some way. And I mean, it, it just, it's deep, deep spiritual work and there's deep, resistance and uh, well it illustrates further how much work there is to do to establish genuine multi-ethnic community because i do think you're right um at a at a at a a level at some level these congregations sincerely want to be Mm multi-ethnic they think because if we call a black pastor, they will preach a certain way, and we like that preaching style, yes. right? But then there are other things that come with it um, that they don't see in the moment. They, see, they may see uh, maybe a worship leadership style or a preaching style, um, and maybe just a, a personal likability. Say, okay, we want this person, but then there are the other these other issues that that pop up, like. Um, you know, the time of death is a time, you have used the word sacred um, uh, quite a few times, and I think that's true, and it's it's a very vulnerable time. That's, and so they, yeah. they're wrestling with how much do we let this person in because they've never had to do that, right? right. In their families, when it, was, when it was time to be vulnerable, it was all white people. It, it could be. And so now it's like we, we really don't know how to relate to you and be this vulnerable. Right. I mean, and, I think, speaking as a white person, I think it's about lots of levels of life where you want genuine and authentic relationships, but 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 are you brave enough to be vulnerable in front of someone of another ethnicity, right? That's just different. You know, one of the... Um, wisest things I heard someone say about marriage was a therapist and she was speaking to women and she said something like your husband's desire is really to be at his most vulnerable with you and know that you will not crush his heart Mm -hmm. um and but if if you if he gets vulnerable becomes vulnerable and and, and, you and there's harm, him. then it's not likely that that flower is going to open up again soon, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really really wise because it does speak to even though we're not socialized to think this way, it does speak to a real deep desire that men have to find some space in the world where we can be vulnerable. When I would say it speaks to a real deep desire that humans have yes. to find some place in yes. the world where they can be vulnerable. And in our culture, there are lots of places where it's okay for women to be vulnerable. And there are no places where it's okay for men to be vulnerable. Listen, it is like I'm trying to think of it a place challenging. It, there, where there are very few, I don't, I mean, like I think there are relationships mm-hmm. where it's okay for men to be vulnerable. And like there are individual those, safe places, but not, but I just, you know, there's no vision of like school, church, family, friendship, like the, the visions and the images and that are pushed out there are like, it's just not okay anywhere, anywhere mm-hmm. for men to be vulnerable, for men to be weak. It is not okay. I mean, you can comes, be that, but you're not masculine. And when it comes to being multi-ethnic church, it's often set up in a way where white Christians are still the majority, still the ones in power. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a friend, someone that I pastor, his name is Robbie, um, and he is so amazing to me um, because I went to pastor this black church, 
and he's the only white member. Mm-hmm. And um, there, there was another white Presbyterian church just right down the road, literally right down the road. And I said to him, I asked him one day um, at a fellowship dinner, I said, Robbie, why are you in this church? He's like, because God is here, and I like these people. I like the way they worship, and I, this, this, this is my family. And he could tell me mm-hmm. about people's kids. And um, he's like, I grew, I, I grew up in this community. I've grown up. You see that guy over there? We grew up together. And I was like, oh, this is, this is his community. Um, and I, I don't think enough white people get the... Um, Get the sacred privilege mm-hmm. of being, of having the experience of being in the minority. Correct. And receiving, and being received into the community, right? They're right. in yeah. a place of, I'm the majority, in the majority, got the power, therefore I do not have to be vulnerable. Right, and you don't know the great healing that comes from your weakness being met with love mm, mm-hmm. and um, a strength that doesn't wound but but lifts up. And I think that... Because black people will adopt you in a second. Well, I mean, that, you know, <laughs> I, I do think that that's really true. And, and there's, you know, because, I mean, I'm speculating, but because so much of the experience of m- black Americans has been to be in the minority and to be sort of abused and othered and taken advantage of and that that those practices by and large are are very abhorrent within the black community so they're not a strategy that the black community uses against white people but white people expect that that will happen to them because we know that that is what the majority of our community does i mean not me not all white people i'm not racist but we know that these are the patterns of our culture and so we get really scared about being in a space where we might be the minority because we know even when we pretend that we don't what happens to people who are in the minority in our spaces mm-hmm. and so you just i mean because i think it's true like many black people do have the experience in some majority white spaces that Robbie had of being met with imperfect but sincere love and being like, you know, but many white people do not have the experience of being in a black space and being met with generosity and love and true acceptance of having their weakness be not punished, but, you know, mm-hmm. honored. We don't have that experience because we don't go into black spaces. We don't right. go places where we're the minority. Mm-hmm. We do everything that we can to avoid that. And that's just sad. And I would say as a, as a mother raising white daughters, it's really important to me, not just our church, which is diverse, which is great, but that's different because they're the preacher's kids and it's church and whatever. But like, I want my kids and we seek out places for my kids to not be the majority because I want them to know what it is like to be the minority because that's one way that you develop your own set of values around who you want to be with your power, mm-hmm. right? So that is just a real, and that's how you also learn that that power isn't always what it appears to be, right? That even in situations where you are weak and you appear powerless, there is um, a deep kind of agency and power and beauty that you that no one can take from you. And you just don't yeah. know that if you're all in these majority cultures. Plus, the majority culture is toxic, so I want my kids out of it. But okay, you know, we are not talking about a single thing that we said we were going to talk about. We were walking. We're like almost out of time, too, aren't we? Yeah, we we were on the walk and we said, okay, we're going to talk about this thing. And we totally have not even mentioned it yet. I know, but I feel like how long has this podcast been going? I just feel like, as as awesome and interesting as we think we are, (laughs) we might need to save the other thing for next week, right? Sure. Because we're like over an hour. Almost. Correct. Okay. So we're going to press pause here um, because we value your time, (laughs) which is kind of dumb. We could talk for forever and people are totally capable of turning it off. So very um, true. And that's true. But no, I I don't want to launch into another great, huge thing. So um, we will just thank you for listening. Um, If you want to find out more about Derida Presbyterian Church, where Yolando serves, Loudly over the leaf blower, I'll tell you. 
that. Um, you can check out uh, their website, um, deritaprez.org. That is D-E-R-I-T-A prez.org. That's my squeaky door, which you closed right at the moment that our neighbors stopped using their leaf blower. But that's cool. We're not pretending to have production value around here. We have zero oh, technological tried. swag. I try. Um, so check out deritaprez.org. Check out Yolando's catalog of messages, which are at the Podbean website, um, the Derida Church Podbean website uh, podcast. And check out Derida Prez's YouTube channel. Is that Derida Prez on YouTube too? What's Derida the, Church. Derida Church on YouTube. Uh, a person who thinks about these things would say that should all be standard, but whatevs. I'm not that person. Um, and... <laughs> And none of ours are either. The Grove is like the Grove Church and the Grove Prez in different spaces. The and Grove the, Charlotte. And the Grove no, no, Charlotte. It's the Grove Charlotte and the Grove Church, and it's not consistent across all the platforms. Sue me. We're working on it. Um, although, don't sue me because occasionally that actually happens. <laughs> and it's not cute. Um, anyway. Uh, if you want to find out more about what's going on at the Grove, um, you can check out our website, thegrovecharlotte.org. Um, you can worship with us in the sanctuary. Worship with Dorida in the sanctuary at 1030. Worship with yes. us at 10 in our sanctuary or on our live stream, which is on Facebook. Or you can listen to old messages at the Grove. Not old. Timeless. Timeless, timeless messages. Wow. You can listen to our timeless messages on our podcasts, respectively. And the Grove's is the Grove Church Podcast, which you can get on iTunes or wherever, wherever. you get your podcasts. And um, you can check out um, messages and videos on our YouTube channel as well. We're coming for you. We're coming for you on. Uh, on the Grove Church podcast on YouTube. Um, thank you for listening to us, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>